Uh, but good morning. My name is David. I'm one of the pastors uh, here on staff. Glad you can join us for worship today. We have a full day today, so we're going to get right into it. Um, for the past several weeks, we've been studying uh, a letter uh, in the New Testament, First uh, Timothy. And this is uh, what's called a pastoral epistle. Uh, in the New Testament, there are three pastoral epistles. And these are basically letters to uh, address to younger pastors. So we have First Timothy, Second Timothy, uh, and Titus. And these were all letters written by Apostle Paul. And Apostle Paul uh, was a missionary. He was commissioned by Jesus Christ himself to take the gospel to the Gentiles. These were non-Jewish countries and people. And what he did was he went to different regions in that area and uh, preached the gospel, but he planted churches. He planted numerous churches, and in these churches, he uh, called uh, different pastors to oversee them. And this specific church uh, that Timothy now is occupying and leading uh, is, a, is in a city called Ephesus. Uh, Ephesus was the fifth largest ancient city at that time. It was a port city. It was a place of commerce, a huge marketplace. But also in Ephesus, uh, what was prevalent was the imperial cult. There were many buildings erected for the imperial cult, the worship of the emperor. But also in uh, Ephesus, there was the temple Artemis. Uh, this was the goddess, uh, the, a Greek goddess, Diana, that people would worship. Uh, and so this was a very interesting place in, in which the church existed. There were competing philosophies, ideas, obviously complete, competing gods and idols. And now Timothy is pastoring and overseeing a church that exists in this very difficult, hostile environment. But not only was the outside context or the culture very difficult for this church to navigate, within this church in Ephesus arose false teachers, uh, teachers that were uh, preaching and teaching a, a different gospel. Uh, they misunderstood Jesus' teaching, and they were leading people astray. So now think about it. The outside culture is hostile, but also from within, uh, there are enemies of the church. Now, history has shown us that more than outside persecution and pressure, infighting is actually what does the most damage within the church. Uh, you can persecute your ch church. You can, uh, there's numerous martyrs. Uh, you can throw them in jail. Actually, that does not stop the cause of the gospel. What actually really hurts and damages the church is infighting, what happens within the leaders. And many of us have witnessed this in our own experiences. And so Paul writes this letter to this pastor that's, that has a very difficult task ahead of him. Uh, the key to understanding, the key to understanding the purpose of this letter is actually found in chapter 3, verses 14 through 15. Let me go ahead and read this for us. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is a church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Now, Paul couldn't make it here uh, in the time that he wanted to be there, and so he had to write this letter. Why? The key is how one ought to behave in the household of God. Now, we could spend an entire hour just talking about just these two verses, but we don't have time for that. I just want to highlight a few key words and ideas. First, the church is the household of God. This is God's house. We are merely tenants. This is not DC's church. This is not P. Mike's church. This is God's family, and we are his children. We are his family members. The second thing that I want us to notice is that the church is the pillar of truth. 
It's the pillar of truth. The church's responsibility is put on display for the world to see who Jesus Christ is. We are the pillar of truth, the buttress of truth. And that is the foundation. Not that the church is the foundation of truth, but rather the truth is the foundation in which the church is built upon. And this is very important for us to understand. The whole purpose of Paul writing this letter is to teach us of how we are to behave in the church, in the household of God. So if the church is the pillar of truth and the buttress of the truth of God, what is the greatest threat and the enemy of the church? Right? Once again, it's not outside persecution. It is falsehood. It's anything that is in, that's contradicting to the truth of Christ and the gospel. And so this church was under threat of false teachers and errant teachings. And many churches in our nation have fallen into the same uh, difficult situation where they're compromising on the gospel. They're compromising on the ideas of marriage. They're compromising in so many different areas in which the Bible speaks into. And we are at risk too. We cannot think that we are safe from uh, this temptation to compromise the truth of God. And if you take a look, close look within our own lives, uh, built into our nature is this kind of aversion to the gospel, right? We, we are a workspace. You, you earn salvation. You do things to, to obtain whatever that you want to obtain, and so naturally, even within us, we have an aversion to the gospel, that we are saved by grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. We want to fight against this because everything in our lives leading up to where we are now, we're told you got to earn it. You got to work for it. You got to achieve it. But the gospel teaches us that we, can earn, we can't earn it. You're not worthy. Only Christ, by his grace, can give that to you. And so church, we got to be careful uh, this is not just an, uh, a first century early church problem. This is a problem that we deal with individually, but also as a church. And so Paul is instructing this young pastor who is now trying to navigate the difficult culture outside, but also try to maintain unity within a church that is being divided by false teachers. So in chapter 1, Paul is wanting to clean house. He's wanting to clean house, get rid of the pests. So he exposes the false teachers, and he explains once again what the truth of the gospel is. And in chapter 2, he wants to restore order into the house because there was dysfunction and disorder. So he calls men to pray, pray with hands lifted up, holy hands lifted up. And he instructs women right, to adorn themselves with godliness and to submit to authority. Now that brings us to our passage today in 1 Timothy chapter 3 verses 1 through 7. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn there. If you have your apps, if, you're not, if you don't have either one, it's going to uh, be up on the screen for you uh, to follow along. Let me read this for us. Let's give our full attention to God's holy word. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, and able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for, the God, how will he care for God's church? 
He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with, uh, puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. This is God's word. Amen. So in the past four years, our family moved, uh, no, in the past three years, our family moved four times. Uh, and so uh, we're not owners, so we're, we're constantly renting. Uh, and so we, we've grown accustomed to the whole process. And it's a pretty rigorous process. As we're looking for different places, uh, this is how it goes. They give you an application. You fill out that, if you fill out the application, you submit your credit report. Then they want to know uh, your, your employment. So you submit the most recent pay stubs. Uh, and sometimes they want to actually get to know your family. So they want to interview you to get to know you so, so that they'll make sure and ensure that the people that are now coming into their house Right? We'll take care of it. They won't destroy it. Right? They won't destroy the house. So they go through all these different steps to ensure that whoever's renting my house will be responsible and will take care of it. Right? It's a very important and understandable process. Right? If, I, if I were to rent out my own house, if one day I have one, I'll go through the same rigorous process. Um, the same is true for the household of God. Not just anyone can come and lead and being an overseer. And so Paul is now talking about who qualifies then to lead and pastor a church. Uh, now, this has been one of the most daunting passages that I had to prepare for and preach because, you know, every, every year or even twice a year, I have a, uh, uh, an assessment or an evaluation, performance evaluation from Pastor Mike. But instead of doing it with Pastor Mike, I'm actually doing it with you guys. I'm actually setting up a measuring stick for you guys to see how I am as a pastor. And so this was a very challenging message to prepare, knowing that you guys will now be able to assess me and evaluate me. Um, But at the same time as I was preparing this, I just realized how weighty the calling uh, I have uh, to be a pastor and how uh, an amazing privilege it is for me to stand up here to preach, but also to lead uh, this congregation. Uh, see, many, many people will be tempted to actually tune out this message uh, because you're not a pastor or you're not an elder or an overseer and you have no desire to be. Um, but what's important to, uh, to note in this letter that Paul is writing, although it's addressed to Timothy, actually it was an open letter. Uh, the church would have access to this letter and actually hear this letter being uh, shared out loud. And we know this because of the last words that Paul says in this letter. He says, grace be with you. Now, that Greek word you is not in the singular, it's actually in the plural. So we know then that this letter was for the entire church. And this passage, although you're not a pastor or an elder or you don't hope to become one, this is for you. Why? Why? Because you are responsible for who is standing up here. You have responsibility and accountability for those that are in positions of leadership in this church. And so you are called to guard this church as well as I am, to make sure that the truth is upheld, right? That we don't compromise. You all have ownership of this community. And so hopefully, you'll close, pay close attention to Paul's words and God's word for us. Another reason why this is very important because uh, there are some of us that have had amazing relationship with pastors, encouraging ones. You walk with them. You grew with them. But at the same time, 
probably half of us have had negative, damaging, painful experiences with pastors. Uh, and, and so um, this is a very relevant and important message for us going forward as we grow as a community and as we call elders within this church and as we call different pastors to come on board. What are we gonna, how are we going to filter through all the different candidates? Right? And so two ideas from our passage today. The role of a pastor... And secondly, the qualifications of a pastor. The role and the qualifications. So first, the role. Verse 1, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. He desires a noble task. Um, Whenever I'm on the plane or when I go to Deacon's preschool, my son Deacon, I'm talking about him next week uh, in our passage, but um, the, the conversation always comes up, right? What do you do? And even to this day, I, I, I cringe. And, and I, I say, sometimes I say, and I, sometimes I've said this, I'm trying to get better at just being honest and truthful. I just say, oh, you know, I'm a teacher. I'm a teacher. And the next follow-up question is, oh, what do you teach? What grade? And at that point, I can't, I can't lie. I'm like, oh, I, I teach the Bible. And oh, you, are you a pastor? And I'm like, oh, yes, I'm a pastor. The reason why I have a hard time telling people I'm a pastor is because the whole environment, demeanor of that individual just changes, right? Like, oh. And then they kind of just walk away, right? Just doesn't go any further than that. But one thing I constantly hear over and over again, I was like, oh, that's very noble of you. That's very noble of you. But the way that they say it it makes makes it sound like they're pitying me, like like they feel sorry for me. Oh, that's very noble of you. I'm like, what what does that mean? What does that mean? And the next question I get is, what do you do all day? And some, some, some of them actually genuinely ask, what do you do? Uh, what does that mean? But there are others that, that are very kind of condescending. Like, so what do you do all day? And I just want to joke. Like, all I do is just pray and sing songs. <laughs> like, that's what I want to say. But, you know, these, these, are, these are good questions. And actually in Seattle, uh, when, I, when I told them about, you know, I was working in the, uh, the marketplace, but when I told them what I did previously, um, it was just straight up to say to myself, oh, that's not a real career. And some would even say, oh, man, I don't think pastors should even get paid, right? And so there's an element of cynicism when it comes to this, this role and responsibility of a pastor or an elder. And so I think it's very understandable. There's one thing, though, that I, I don't ever want to hear, but I've heard so many times. Um, and, and it actually really gets me angry. Some young students will come to me and say, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try business, I'm going to try uh, marketing, programming, and if everything fails, I'm going to go into ministry. <laughs> at that time, at that point, I just want to, like, give them the right hand of fellowship, you know? <laughs> it really, like, just something within me gets angry. Like, I'm going to try everything, and if I fail at everything, then I'm going to just try pa- being a pastor, right? And, um, yeah, please don't say that to a pastor. <laughs> they might actually slap you. I'm just joking, but... Um, so this is kind of an inside look at, at kind of my experience with people that don't really know what pastors do. And so this is an opportunity for me to share a little bit about the role of a pastor. So the Paul uses here the word overseer, overseer. And um, there are a lot of different words that, are, that, are, that, that can be synonymous with this. Bishop, pastor, and elder. Uh, in the New Testament, we see just uh, this, uh, this word being uh, kind of interchanged. Overseer, pastor, elder, 
bishop, right? And so this is an interesting word, but this is what's used to describe a pastor. Uh, But before actually going into the, the very specific roles of what pastors do, we need to acknowledge and understand that church leadership, this role of an overseer, is not a human invention, but actually was God's design. And we see this from the Old Testament. Uh, In the wilderness, as God's people were increasing in numbers, God called Moses and Abraham to, no, sorry, Moses to appoint leaders, wise and responsible leaders over each tribe, right? To oversee them, to care for them, right? So it's an Old Testament phenomenon. But in the New Testament, as a church and as Christians were growing, Right? Paul and Barnabas, as they were planting churches, and each church, they called an overseer to care for the church. Right? So that's, that's very important to realize that this was not human design, but God's design. And so in his wisdom, he appointed certain individuals, and he called individuals to oversee and pastor churches. But I want to talk about four different roles. Now, there are more, but these are the four general broad roles of a pastor, And if you have your Bibles, you can go there. It's not going to go up on the screen in in, in whole, but Acts 20, verses 27 through 31. And this is actually Paul's word to the church in Ephesus in which he planted. Now, uh, 1 Timothy is uh, is, uh, written years later, but this this was his instruction to the leaders and and, and the people of the church in Ephesus, right? The first role of a pastor or an elder is to lead. Now, that's obvious, but leadership is a, the, the first role that I want us to look at. Verse 28 in Acts 20. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with our own blood. Pastors and elders, as overseers, are called to lead. Right? Another way of understanding an overseer or pastor is a supervisor. Supervisor, that's another definition. A pastor is to lead, manage, provide oversight over the church. However, this leadership is not on impulse or on our own ideas, but rather under the authority of Jesus Christ. Right? By his blood, he obtained us. So once again, this is not P. Mike's church and P. Mike's congregation. This is not D.C.'s church or D.C.'s congregation. This is Christ's blood-bought, purchased church. So we are responsible for Jesus' people. And so our leadership includes making decisions and sometimes very difficult ones. And it means that we are responsible for what happens in this church. We are responsible for all of us here. So that's the first role. Very simply, is to lead. But I want to also note that that pastors are actually called, like any other vocations, right? If you're a lawyer, if you're a doctor, engineer, programmer, it is a calling. The same thing is true for a pastor. We are called. But one thing that's very uh, important to note in verse 28 is the Holy Spirit has made you, made you. So we didn't create ourselves. It's not like I wanted to just, I'm going to just try hard and do this. No, the Holy Spirit has called us and he equips us to be able to fulfill this responsibility. So the first thing is uh, leadership. The second role of a pastor is shepherding, shepherding to care for the church. Verse 29 and 30. 
I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. See, pastors are to lead, but how are we to lead? It is by serving you guys, caring for you guys. Very simply, pastors are called to be servant leaders. This should be visible in the way that pastors actually care for God's people. And shepherd is one of the main metaphors that the scripture uses to talk about and describe a pastor. Shepherds lead and guide their sheep, making sure that they don't fall into the valleys. They find good pasture and water for them to feed feed on. But what is specifically being emphasized here in, in verses 29 and 30 is this idea of protection. Fierce wolves, lions, bears will come and try to eat and kill the flock. So as shepherds, pastors, elders are responsible to protect their church from false teachings so that they're not misled or that they won't misapply the truth of Scripture. Now, in this specific church, it arose from the ranks. Actually, these were leaders within the church that started teaching twisted things. Now, if there's someone in this congregation that actually teaches a different gospel, saying that, actually, you're saved by how good you are, as pastors, P. Mike and I, and some elders, future elders in this, in this congregation, would have to confront and address that individual to guard and protect the flock from false teachings. It's a very important responsibility. It is to shepherd. And so we need to be properly equipped, right, with necessary tools in order to identify false teachings and then to uh, apply the gospel into that difficult situation. And so that leads us to the third responsibility of a pastor or an elder, and that is to teach the word of God. We are called to teach. That is our responsibility. Verse 27 of chapter 20 in Acts. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. The key word here is whole. We can't pick and choose what we teach. We need to teach the full breadth of Scripture. And there are some topics that we want to avoid. Trust me. I want to avoid this passage. Right? Because I'm literally putting up a measuring stick for you guys to evaluate me with. But no, we are called to teach the entirety of Scripture, all of Jesus' teachings. That's why we cannot shy away from talking about sin. We cannot be shy away from talking about the wrath of God and hell. Because why? That's in the Bible. We have to talk about difficult uh, issues like homosexuality, same-sex marriage. Right? These are things that we struggle with as pastors. And last week, Pastor Michael had to talk, a very, talk about a very controversial topic about men and women in the church. Right? We will not be responsible pastors if we don't teach the whole counsel of God. And so what that looks like for us is that we go to school. We pay a lot of money to learn Greek and Hebrew. We, 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 we submit ourselves and we study under professors to understand what Scripture is trying to teach. And we want to apply it in a way that honors God. And this is a very difficult task. And so I still spend about 20, 25 hours on each sermon that I prepare because there's so much to learn, right? And so what do pastors do a lot is read and study because uh, there's just so much that we want to share with you guys uh, and God wants to share with you guys. But I want to uh, make sure to know that uh, not all elders are called to teach. So now we have teaching elders and ruling elders. 
And especially in this context, in the CRC, we have what's called a ruling elder and a teaching elder. Pastor Michael and I were considered teaching elders. And in the future, when we do ordain elders in this group, they'll probably be ruling elders. If they can teach, great. But we won't require that. And so um, there are different lingos in the church realm to describe these three responsibilities, leadership, shepherding, and teaching. Very simply, uh, it is prophet, king, and priest. So amongst pastors, we'll say, hey, what are your dominant gifts? Prophet, king, or priest. So the, teach, uh, the leadership gift is most uh, commonly associated with king, kingship. Right? This includes making decisions, leadership, administration, organization. Right? The second one, right, shepherding, is most commonly associated with priestly gifts. It's like walking with people, right? Sh- hearing their problems, uh, shepherding them, caring for them, right? priestly gifts. And thirdly, as far as teaching goes, is considered one of the prophetic gifts, so prophet, king, and priest, right? The prophets were the ones to be the voice of God, to teach uh, the errant people of Israel to come back to God, to repent. So prophet, king, and priest. Now I want to tell you guys, not one pastor have I met that has all three gifts. Uh, there's just, it's just no way. Only Jesus Christ actually fulfills all three perfectly. Humans, we cannot. There won't be a pastor that has all three dominantly. Uh, Most likely, each pastor, each elder will have one dominant and maybe a close second, but they will just totally be oblivious to the third, right? I'll let you guys figure out which one is mine and which one's P-Mike, right? It's kind of fun. Which one are are, are, our dominant, right, gifts? But I wanted to share that with you because it's sometimes unfair for pastors because when I look at some job descriptions, they want all three, like, to be excellently done, and I just want to say it's impossible. That's why we have plurality of leadership. That's why there's PMite, there's me, and hopefully there's going to be more elders as our church grows to, to help right, lead this church in the way that honors God. The last role, and this is the most difficult role of a pastor, uh, and that is to model Christ. <laughs> we are to model Christ. I am to model Christ. Pastors are to emulate and exemplify the gospel. It makes sense. We're preaching the gospel every Sunday, but if our lives don't exemplify the gospel, then, then, then we're panhandlers. We're frauds. Right? We, we, can, we, can te- we can teach it, but are we living it out? Right? So we are called not to only teach the gospel, but live out the gospel. Now, these, all Christians are called to this, but especially pastors and leaders. They're called to live out and model what the gospel looks like. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7. This is what the author, author says. Christians are called to imitate the faith, imitate the faith of the leaders and pastors. So do your pastors remind you of Jesus? That's a rhetorical question. Don't, don't answer that, okay? You could talk about, about it amongst your small groups. Um, do we remind you of Jesus? And that's, that's a very humbling question for me to ask myself. And another, another question I have to ask myself as a pastor is, what will happen if the church imitates me? When the church sees my life, how I talk, how I raise my family, will they imitate? Like how, what would they do if they try to imitate me? So leadership, shepherding, 
teaching. And the most difficult one of all is that we are to model Christ and the gospel. So who qualifies? Who qualifies for this? Verses 2 through 7 in our passage today. Um, we can't, we're not going to have it up there, but if you have your Bibles open up, just, just keep your, your finger there. What we don't see in that list is success, wealth, charisma, tenure of the church, and good-looking, okay? That, that's not in uh, that description. But all too often, when we look at the church and how they sometimes call elders, those are some of the things that, that we're prone to look at. Instead, we have four kind of broad categories in which elders and pastors should possess, right? First one is personal life. We got to look at the personal life of that elder or that pastor. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Above reproach. The person has to have a blameless reputation, and then he lists off all these characteristics, right? Sober-minded. Right? We can't be temperamental, self-controlled, uh, respectable, hospitable. Are we, are we opening up our home to others? We talked about teaching, right? We're, we're not to get drunk on wine. We're not to be abusive. We're not to lead as, as like a, a domineering dictator. Uh, we're not trying to pick fights. And we're not to love money. Right? Above reproach. What does this not mean? It doesn't mean faultless. Pastors sin, guys. I'm sorry to disappoint you, but I sin. I probably sin like maybe a dozen times just this morning in my head. It doesn't mean that we're faultless. Above reproach also doesn't mean that everyone likes you or agrees with you. That's not what it means. Paul had numerous opponents. Jesus had haters. That doesn't mean that everyone likes you and approves of you and your decisions. So how do we then find out if someone is above reproach? How do we vet pastors? Uh, now, this is a little bit of practical insight. I had to provide numerous references, both from my previous work, from my previous uh, church employer, and uh, other personal ones. And so, you know, Pastor Michael would call all these different individuals to see and verify my calling and my character to be a pastor. Uh, and we do the same for whoever comes on board as this church. Basically, what we have to do is we have to go to those people that are involved in that individual's life to see, hey, is this person legit? Does this person qualify, exemplify these characteristics? Right? And so in the future, as we are going to call different elder candidates from within this church, which I believe we do have qualified elders, we would go to, go to you guys and ask you guys, okay, is this person real? Or is this person a fraud? Does he put on a good face on Sunday, but every other day he's, he's actually not living a gospel-centered life? See, if someone hears, hey, I, I heard, you know, DC is at your church, and if they say, what is he doing as a pastor? That should raise red flags, Right? That's your red flag. If they're like, um, what? He's a pastor? That's a red flag. Right? And so this idea of being above reproach and how we do it is by talking to the, the people involved in that individual's lives. And so then Paul continues 
to explain the qualifications of an above reproach life. And he says, look at his family. Look at, look at his social life and look at his spiritual life. So secondly, his family life. The husband of one wife. He must manage his household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? And very simply, because I can talk about the various different ways that different denominations and different churches, and even the Catholic church, interprets this passage. But very simply, is that individual a faithful husband? Is he a faithful husband? Husband of one wife. Is he, has he had a previous marriage? Uh, did he have a divorce that's unbiblical? Now, divorce, there, there are two, two biblical reasons to divorce. One is if your partner had an affair, an adultery, an adulterous relationship. And secondly is abandonment. Abandonment, if that person just completely leaves you. Those are the only two biblical reasons to actually divorce. But when, we are called, when we're looking at the role of an elder or a pastor, and if you find out that they, are, they had an unbiblical divorce, they are disqualified from that office. And if I fall into uh, an affair, or if I commit adultery, I am disqualified to be a pastor. And that's my personal conviction, but I, I believe that's what Jesus, uh, uh, Jesus teaches and what the Bible teaches as well. Look at his home. Look at his children. Now, I, I cringed at this because my, my children are a little crazy, right? I have a four-year-old and two-year-old, and, and they're rebellious. I do my best. Amen. I do, yes, amen. <laughs> I do my best, but, you know, sometimes our house is crazy, right? But look at his wife. Look at his children. If you were to interview Deacon and Devin, and, and Devin's starting to talk a little bit, what would they say about me? If you interview my wife, what would she say about me? You know, he's a good preacher, but actually he's a horrible father. Right? Honestly, that would disqualify, I would disqualify myself if that was the case. Does he take responsibility right, over his family? Is he physically, emotionally abusive? Does he neglect his children, ignore his children completely? If he cannot lead and, and, and shepherd and care for and take responsibility over his family, what makes that what makes, we, uh, makes us think that he can do that for the church when there's 250-plus people in this community? So essentially, a pastor has two families, one at home and one in God's home. And if he can't manage his family well, he, he cannot lead the church. Third, third thing that we want to look at is his social and business life. Verse 7, Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. How does he conduct himself outside the church and outside the home? Uh, if, if you talk to his coworkers, if you go into the workplace, if you go to his friends, what would they say? What would they say? What is a witness? What, what is a witness of non-Christians to this individual? Does he live a double life? If you talk to his non-Christian associates, will he say, you know what? He's different. He shows an enormous amount of patience, grace, generosity. What would they say? So look at his social life. Lastly, his spiritual life. Now, all these things are spiritual, but there is a, a caveat here. 
He must not be a recent convert, verse 6. He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into, uh, in, into the condemnation of the devil. He must not be a recent convert. Why? Because it takes time for a Christian to not only understand the gospel, but to live in light of the gospel. It takes time. Uh, it's not something that we just, it just clicks in our head and then all of a sudden you fully comprehend the gospel and you're actually able to live it out. Many pastors have to go through brokenness. Many pastors have to suffer, experience pain in order to come to this position of being a pastor. Uh, I went into ministry about eight years ago. It took me eight years to get ordained. Uh, I like to think some of it was my decision, but I think it was really God training me uh, to be a faithful husband, faithful father, and a good associate to my coworkers to live out the gospel in the workplace. I really believe that it takes time. So it cannot be a recent convert uh, to take the office of an elder or pastor. So we look at his personal life, his family life, his social, and his spiritual life. All right, just to recap for us, what do, what do elders and pastors do? They lead, they shepherd, teach, and we are called to model Christ. What are the qualifications? Look at his personal, look at his family life, look at his social life, and look at his spiritual life. Uh, in my journey, I was, I was tempted to disqualify myself numerous times because uh, I, I am, in, 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 in a sense, an idealist and a perfectionist. Uh, I, I really thought that I disqualified myself in several occasions. Um, in my marriage, uh, as a father, uh, it's just so hard uh, to, um, to be married to another sinner. You can, you can ask Jane. It's hard. And then to, to raise children who are rebellious, even though you're trying your best. It's, it's, it's really uh, sober, sobering uh, as I was studying this passage and reflecting on my own journey. And there are those here. Uh, actually, we have deacons in training right now, uh, several of them. And I think there are several of us here that are considering becoming an elder, or some of us here have been called to be a pastor. And you're looking at these, these, these roles and qualifications, and you can be discouraged. I can't do this. And actually, if you look at this list, every Christian is called to live out an above reproach life. It's not just for elders, but especially for those that take the office. But so all of us, we are called to this life. And you can be discouraged at this time. Uh, this is impossible. How can I live a life like this. I just, uh, just want to remind you uh, that it's not about perfection, but about progression in grace. It's not about perfection because no one is perfect, only Jesus Christ is, but it's about progressing in a life of grace. But how do we get there? How do we pursue godliness as, as Paul desires for us? The first thing that we need to understand is that godliness is not about performance, but rather about our position. Godliness needs to start about reflecting on where our position is in Christ first before we want to go into the area of performance. Now, many Christians, we make this error. When you hear a sermon on godliness, you just, okay, what do I need to do? Tell me what to do. Read the Bible more, memorize scripture, pray and fast. Although those are important elements in growing in godliness, we got to look at our position in Christ first. See, religion will tell you to perform. Religion will tell you, hey, you chase after God. You perform for him. Show your worth to him. Right? And then he will accept you. See, Christianity flips it upside down. The gospel tells us that God came to us first, 
And he demonstrated his goodness in Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is the one who performs on our behalf. It is in Jesus Christ that we can be godly, that we have a status that is righteous before him. Not not in in, in ourselves, not by our performance, but but by what Christ has performed on our behalf, we can now pursue godliness without fear or anxiety. See, the gospel frees us to pursue godliness, to aspire this office of being an elder. So look to the cross. Look to Jesus Christ as you pursue your life of holiness. In closing, I just want to apply this passage in in just two very simple ways. Can I invite our church to pray for your pastors? Uh, Pray for P. Mike and myself. Uh, We are just as tempted. We have that within us, that that mechanism within us that has an aversion to grace. We want to earn, right? We want want you to accept us. We want to be well-liked. The temptation is, is, is real for pastors. Can you pray for us that we can uh, really look to Christ in our role of, of, of shepherding you guys and loving you guys? Can you pray for us on a daily, weekly basis? We need your prayers. And secondly, second way I want to apply this is by what I already just said. As a household of God, uh, we need to be godly. We need to grow in godliness. But that happens when we fixate our eyes on Jesus Christ. Right? Don't take your... Don't take your eyes off the gospel of grace. Keep your eyes fixated on him. And I'm so excited for what God is going to continue to do as he grows us in godliness as we focus on Christ. Let me close in prayer. Father, I thank you so much for this word. I thank you for my call to to lead and, and pastor this church. And thank you for Pastor Mike and his leadership um, and his wisdom in leading this church, but we, we need your help. Help us, Lord, to pastor well. But I want to lift up your house, God. We need your spirit. We need your grace to work in growing us in godliness. We cannot do it ourselves. I pray for the deacons in training right now and the future elders of this community. God, may you assure them of your grace and your love. Help us as a church to pursue holiness in the way that honors you. Help us to keep our eyes fixated upon the gospel. And as we do so, Lord, may you be faithful to bear fruit in this community, that we can be a great witness, Lord, to to those outside and around this church for your glory and for your namesake. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.